Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. church. It is good to be back with you. For those of you that are um, surprised, I am too when the alarm went off this morning. I I must admit I was alarmed uh, this morning when it went off, but that was mainly our fault. Miss Cammie and I went to watch a a soccer game last night, and it, um, it was long and cold and rainy, and we've been colder but not on purpose, and that's what bothered me, was we, we put ourselves in this position. But regardless of that, it's good to be with you, uh, and this is one of those days I wish I could drink coffee, but I, I, just, I love the smell of it, hate, hate the taste, so if I start, um, if I start speaking in tongues, uh, be careful, and if I, if I look like I'm about to lead you in prayer, I've nodded off, someone help me, all right? Somebody get up here and help me. We are so blessed today. We have Dr. Hunter back with us. Uh, he has been helping a friend set up a church or get moving within that church, uh, helping him transition. And so uh, we love you dearly. It's so good to see you. And I think you saw that when everybody ran over to hug you. Uh, as, and we have the Freemans have been here all week uh, from Washington State. Hi, Spokane. We love our people there. And they've been, uh, they've been enjoying, I got to tell you, though, the, the Southern people are trying to win them over. People, they're saying, people hold the doors open for you. And they, they, they say, thank you and excuse me. And I went, yeah, it's, it's like a cult. It's like a cult. And uh, come, let us embrace you. But it's been great having you here as well. Got, got a, a nice team here this morning. We have visitors also from family. And that's so always so sweet. If you're ever in Middle Tennessee, we would love to have you come. You just let us know ahead of time. And you can email any of us. It's just direct from the website. Um, email me personally, patrick at oursafeharbor.com, or info if you want to do the whole team, info at oursafeharbor.com. We do have one of our members from uh, Kirksville, which that's in uh, northeastern Missouri, and we have actually quite a few there, but one of them is now down in Santa Fe this week. He's taken down a bunch of equipment for some teens, but he's going to be there for a week. And he says, if there are any members who are within driving distance of Santa Fe who would like just to, to meet up and say hi, he would love to do so. So that's your, up to you guys now. You, you let us know. Um, and again, same email addresses. Let us know. And we will get you hooked up with Eric. And that'll be great. Some of our members, when they go off into other places, are volunteering to do this now, which is a great blessing. And that means a lot to us. I'm going to tell you, about a strange conversation and a strange set of experiments that'll help explain why we don't always see things the same way. My wife and I had not been married long when we invested in a camera that had an SLR, a single lens reflex, that you could change the lenses. And we didn't have the money for one of those that does you know, all the way down and all the way out. So we had to, I think we had two or three lenses. And uh, as I was talking to her, I said, 50 millimeter is what they call normal. You know, you have a fish eye, you have telephoto, but this 50 is normal. And I said, but there's no way to know if it's normal or not. 
And she, looking at me, goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's what we think we see, but it is only because we encode it that way that we call this normal. And she goes, well, no, we can tell because you can go feel things, and they are that shape, like a door. I remember we looked at a door. And I said, there's a problem. If you think this is normal, when you run your hand up there, it's going to tell you it's normal. And that's about the time she, she gave me what she claimed were Skittles, but I fell asleep for hours, hours. <laughs> well, there have been some universities that have actually done this study. And they have fitted, we always fit the undergrads with this, poor undergrads. They need, they need a few extra bucks or, or a little help with the grades, so they, they volunteer for these uh, with goggles. And they, the rule was you had to put them on first thing in the morning and you could not take them off all day. And the goggles did different things. And some of the studies, they reversed the image. So up is down and down is up. On others, it was at a cant of some sort. Now, first day, obviously, they can't drive. Um, most of them had a really hard time getting out of their rooms. Headaches, nausea, frustration. And it went on like that for about a week to two weeks. And then they... It, everything was fine. And they negotiated the world just right until you took them off. And then they went through that horrible period of readjustment again. Now, I wasn't directly in charge of that study, but I would like to apologize on behalf of all of the postgrads that, that needed to get the credit to do studies. It's been done several times, and my whole point is this. We read things through lenses. They're our culture. They're what we've been taught. They can even be part of our uh, economic group, our political group, uh, our, our community group. But we read things through those lenses. And we need to always remember that. There are, there's a wonderful book out there, Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes, which uh, does a great job of trying to lift away the lenses that we put on Paul so that you can see Paul through the eyes of the people where he lived. And it's a big book, and it takes some work, because changing your lenses takes a lot of work. Good, honest people read Scripture, and they've, for the last 2,000 years, have come up with three broad categories of what happens to people when they die who do not belong to Jesus at that point. Infernalists believe that there is conscience torment forever and ever, billions and trillions of years. Uh, annihilationist, sometimes called conditionalist, believe that it is up to whether uh, you either just cease to be if you didn't belong to Jesus, or you are given an opportunity to accept him after death. And that, that's why they call that conditionalist. And if you say no, then you cease to exist. Then there are universalists. And universalists are the ones which upset more people. Uh, I know that because I get emailed. But as I stated last week, universalists don't believe in automatic cleansing that, let's say, because everybody goes there, everybody goes there, Hitler doesn't get to wake up in the sweet arms of Jesus. They don't believe that. They believe that there is punishment. Uh, let me qualify that statement slightly. Every universalist I've ever read or heard believes there is punishment. There might be somebody out there who believes that Hitler just got a great surprise and so did everybody else in heaven. You know, I, I am, I'm not there and I don't know of anybody else who is. 
Universalists believe, however, souls will be cleansed with the punishment of some sort. But that punishment, kolasis, the Greek word there, uh, every time that God talks about punishing, he uses a word for remedial or rehabilitative punishment. Now that's, um, that's a bit of a shock for some, because I have found that you can mess with people's theology. You know, Jan talked about how hers has changed. You can mess with their theology in so many ways, but if you take away their hell, they get angry. Because that was their one chance of getting their own back. You know, people were mean to me, uh, or they launched a war that took my father, or took my kid, and, and they've, they've got to pay. Well, they will. But here's the thing. Infernalist, annihilationist, and universalist are all reading the same book, and they all have verses to back them up. So what we have to do is figure out, and we're not going to settle that for you, by the way. Remember, we've always said our safe harbor is a, is a heart pumping Jesus out there. We're not your brain, and you're allowed to settle in any of these areas that you want to. A whole lot of people that don't agree with me are still going to heaven. And while that annoys me to no end, it also comforts me because it means I'm going. And we don't have to agree down here about everything. If we agree about Jesus, we can work the rest of it out. We'll find our way. Universalist scriptures, for example, <clears throat> God says to righteous nations, depart from me into inter everlasting fire. As we've seen the last two weeks, everlasting doesn't mean to them what it meant to us. It meant till the end of the fire, till the end of the age. But he also says that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. Uh, Genesis 12, 3. Let me just stop here for a minute. My notes are always put in YouTube under the description of the video. They, as well as the videos, are not copyrighted. You can, you can download them anytime, use them whenever you want to. You don't have to give attribution. Uh, you don't need to say this came from our safe harbor or Patrick. No, no. Use them any way you, you wish to. But the notes today have uh, like 24 different scripture references. And it would be very difficult and expand the sermon a lot if I put every slide up. The notes are there. All right? Okay, saying that, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The promise came early that everybody would be blessed. We can, we can see, actually this spreads. We can see it in Psalm 62. Uh, we can see it in Psalm 67. We can see it in Psalm 145. It is, it's Matthew 25 um, that people are surprised that they're saved and that God intends to save them all. And it, it, is just, it is a staggering thing once you learn how to read it and see it. Universalists say that all of God's punishments must be understood in the light of his redeeming love. Do you remember the scripture last week? That all those who God loves, he disciplines. I, I got to tell you, my father believed in discipline. And while I would disagree with some of his methods and some of his reasons, and even some of his timing... I am very glad that I had some discipline. For I have seen people who didn't receive discipline. Now, here we're not talking about styles, you know, like belts. And you know, people will say, my dad whipped me every day and it didn't hurt me any. And I'm going, I, I really think it did. 
Uh, I'm looking at a scarred human being right here. Uh, we're talking about other discipline as, as one Navy commander, um, and I'm calling him a commander, I don't know what his rank was. He was just a high officer, gave a famous speech uh, when he said, first thing every morning, make your bed. And it's about the idea of starting every day with order and every day with precision, and that it does matter that you make your bed. And I'm sorry, kids, right now, whose parents are glaring at you. <laughs> you take it to the Navy. You know, <laughs> tell it to the Navy. That's all I can tell you. But God's punishments are based upon redeeming love to get you back to the fold. His will, remember, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His character. We see this in the Old Testament time after time after time. I said this, I believe, two weeks ago. I hope some of you have been on your hunt for this. Read the Old Testament and take a look at God's wrath and God's love. The wrath always ends. The love never does. That should make us think. He always comes back. Even after punishing Israel many times over, he always comes back and gives them another opportunity to walk with him. After waiting patiently, Hebrews 6, 7 says, Abraham received what was promised. I'll, I'll read on. Um, People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God went through all of this, not to junk 99% of humanity, but to save us. And in James chapter 2, verse 13 because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, how would he hold that, us to that standard and not hold himself to that standard? Mercy triumphs over judgment. In Adam, the Bible says, all died. But you remember the next line? But in Christ, all will be made alive. Again, it's one of those things that once you see it, uh, I don't know, I've talked about hunters before that they see things that I do not see. But have you ever seen one of those pictures? It looks like just a picture. And then people say, once you see it, and there's a little scary something going on in the background, uh, there's something that doesn't look right. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you learn how to look, for example, the last couple of weeks, we've, we have read English words. But to show you through the Old Testament that even reading English, eternal doesn't mean forever and ever without end. But you just have to see it. And once you start seeing the love of God, you're going to see it a lot of places. You'll even see it in lamentations. That's a, there's a shock. I mean, we would expect, like uh, Romans, that tells us in chapter 5, verse 15, so as an Adam all die, 
So as in Christ, all will be made alive. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteousness act, one righteous act, resulted in justification and life for all people. Romans 5. We miss it. How about Lamentations? No one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. Once you see it, even in a book that is titled, I'm crying here, Lamentations, he knows God's character. And of course, as scripture says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The eternal constant. Well, he who taught us to love and forgive our enemies, have you ever thought about this? He said, love them, forgive them. Do you not think he would hold himself to that standard? Why do we love our enemies? That's a very valid question. And, and I really appreciate it when people ask those type of hard questions. Why should we? Why should we love our enemies? Why should we forgive those who despitefully use you and hate you? And he, he lists things which are, I mean, so it's not like enemies, this person cut in front of me. This is big stuff. Why should we? And the reason is because he is God and that's what he is like. And he wants us to be like the rest of the family. We are to love our enemies and forgive them because he does. All tongues will confess Jesus, the scripture says. All will rejoice in him, though some may be, as scripture says, need to be seasoned with fire. So Jesus comes and says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on in Mark 9. This is a terrifying passage. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would have been better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, if there are people out here with any emotional or mental issues, be aware this is metaphoric. Jesus never intended for anybody to take a knife to their person. All right? He said, but it's, it is better for you to enter life maimed with two, but then with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. We'll talk about the fire later. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. I mean, that's terrifying, isn't it? And taken in isolation, it would mean infernalist is where you should be. But that's not where he ends it. He talks about eventually all peoples, all nations be brought back to him, enemies forgiven. And I've had people that ask me, well, exactly how does that work? Really? You're asking me who is not much bigger or more complex than a grain of sand to explain the creator and how he's going to do this. I've had people say, well, how do you think people will eventually come to love God if, they're, if he's going to burn them? I think the burning has to be looked upon as metaphoric. I don't know how it's going to work, but I trust God. And here's the thing I'm trying to 
whether, no matter where you come down on this subject or any subject, please trust God to do the right thing, the loving thing. And even if Patrick is way off base here, which I have been way off base before, and it may, ha- may very well happen again, I'm saved because he said so. And I trust him. Not because I'm right, but because I trust him. He said so. Well, there's, there's so much more to say, and we'll say it as quickly as I can. David prophesied Israel's stumbling would not be forever uh, in Psalm 62 and verse 22. And Paul said that it was not um, whenever he wrote in Romans 11, the whole chapter. But if you're just in a hurry, read verses 9 through 12. The scripture says that all, you know, their backs would be bent and all this other. Yet, did they stumble so far as beyond recovery, Paul says? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. In other words, because of their transgression, God says, I will forgive all people. And now Israel's envious that some other people get to go to heaven. See, you take away people's hell, they don't like it. We want those people to go. They're not gone. And that makes people angry. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Romans. Did you miss it before? It's there, Romans 11, but especially verses 9 through 12. Paul also says that Israel's fall means the reconciliation of the world to God. And he further says it'll be like Israel's raised from the dead, the firstborn, considered holy by God. And he brings up that his character ensures their salvation, even though, he says, it were through flames or fire. Now, there are other views, and to be fair, we must bring that up of the afterlife that do not include the salvation of every person. And they may be correct. I have found that, as Jan says, I'm hopeful universalist, but there is a great cause to be made for annihilationism or conditionalism. Uh, Edward Fudge, uh, his book, The Fire That Consumes, I cannot question his scholarship, or absolutely cannot question his heart and his sincerity. He makes an excellent case. So let's talk a little bit about that. They, they believe that uh, hell is not an eternal torture pit, but rather the vast majority of mankind, if they reject Christ, will just cease to be. As one preacher put it to me, in derision. He didn't like Edward Fudge. He said, he just thinks you'll be dead like Rover, you'll be dead all over. And I thought, well, that's still a better choice than the trillions of years of burning thing. You know, if I have to choose between the two, Annihilation, you know, and that the same preacher said, well, if that's true, I could eternally punish you with a gallon of gasoline and a match. And I was thinking, well, this just got personal. This, um, this, this, this is very dark now, and I don't think we need to go dark. What each of these groups about annihilation, conditionalism, what all they, what they remind us of is that Jesus said himself, it's not a one size fits all. 
In fact, in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, it is a fascinating uh, passage for two different reasons. He says, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Later he would say, you do this and you will rule over many things. And we don't know what that is either. I said, I think last week, sometimes I'll look at the web telescope and it'll be showing, you know, the crab nebula or the horsehead nebula. And I'm thinking, am I looking at my future web work site? I have no idea. I have no idea. But I trust God. I've even had people say, how do you know we're going to like heaven? you got to trust God on this. And by the way, it does not involve walking around in white robes, playing harps on clouds. I have no idea where that came from, but it didn't come from Scripture. So, <sighs> relax. It, it, it seems to be a busy place, heaven, and I think you're going to um, love it. Jesus said in Luke 12, some just disobey. They're not evil. They just didn't do what they were supposed to do. Maybe they didn't know. I watch a lot of YouTube videos where people travel to places in the, in the world that I won't ever be, go, or where they go in a way that I would not go. And there's one lady from the Netherlands who has taken her motorcycle all over the world, and she prefers unpaved roads, the most difficult way to do anything. It's like, could you not find any other way to make this harder? You know, like maybe have boa constrictors around you. I'm not sure how. But she was riding across in her latest adventure, uh, Northern Africa, and she's on these plains of, uh, in, right at the north of the Sahara, where it's an empty place. And then out of nowhere, there's this little mud house. And she will stop 100, 200 meters away, and little children run out. They are adorable. Their eyes are big and they're smiling because this is like an alien. This is a white woman, blonde hair, uh, helmet. You know, it looks like a big wasp is driving through. Not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, but like a, a stinging beastie. And then the parents will slowly follow and immediately, no, you must come in and give her tea and bread and make the, her food. And I want to... I look at those little babies and I go, they're so beautiful. Why should we look at those little babies and go, well, they're going to burn for trillions of years because no missionary ever made it there. If we look at them and react in love, I believe that's because we are made in the image of God. And I don't think you can love them as much as he does. And Jesus here is saying, there are going to be some that don't know me. There are going to be some that disobey and didn't even know they were disobeying. But we'll take care of them. Remember Luke 12, 47 through 48, when he talks about that some will be cut off. <coughs> we know now because of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Essene documents there <coughs> that cut off meant to be cut away from his presence. And so the annihilationists say then that they're just gone. I mean, the greatest punishment God can do is to excommunicate you. For every good and perfect gift, 
cometh down from the Father of lights, who is above. To be taken away from all of that, that, that is a horrible thing, too terrible to contemplate. But if you look again at Luke chapter 12, Jesus said that some just disobeyed, they're not evil, they just broke some rules. Some knew they broke some rules, some did not. All will be punished, but the punishment varies to fit the crime. If the crime is being born in a place where there is no mention of the name of Jesus, that's not much of a crime. And we have to trust the righteous judge to factor that in. We're not good at this. We're not good at all at this. In California, which is suffering it very much with weather and with the collapse of a bank where thousands of startups had their money, um, it, they're, they're suffering. Well, if we, um, if we go to California and we talk about you know, justice, everybody hears a different word. Everybody hears a different meaning. They tried, for example, let's get a handle on crime. And they passed a three strikes and you're out rule. The result, some people who just had a little bit too much marijuana in their car three times are now life in prison. Is that really justice? Now, by the way, I'm not going to answer the question for you. I just think that should be asked. Is this justice? But that's a problem with human justice. We put things in there and go, that'll fix it. And it doesn't fix it. God is smarter than us. As far as I can tell, every commenter agrees that Jesus in Luke 12 was speaking of the fate of the wicked at the end of the world. So how then can we square this with the faith that we have inherited that came via Plato and his concept of hell, Hades, the afterlife, that was then adopted by the Roman Catholic Church, mainly in the medieval years. Please remember the early creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed don't even mention torment or punishment at all. It was later that they adopted the Platonian view of the afterlife. How, how can we square this with all of that? Well, I, I've posed this to some in my tribe and others and said, how can we make this a binary, hell or heaven for eternity, after reading all of these scriptures when Jesus said, there's moderation, there's change, there's justice. One told me, I'm not making this up, the fire will just be hotter for some. Um, fire is a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. When you're on fire, even part of you, nobody's ever said, could be worse. You know, it's not super hot fire. Fire is horrible. And that kind of answer is offensive to the character of God, his love. Another, several, in fact, told me that those who knew about Jesus sometime, well, they, they had, a, and, and had a chance to come to Jesus. They will suffer more emotionally than those who never had the chance who then went to hell. And I look at them and said, never had the chance do you hear what's coming out your mouth? Never had the chance, so we're going to burn them forever. Dr. Fudge, another annihilationist, made me step back and repent of some things I'd said and done. And when I go back and read all the arguments I used to make for um, making hell a place where you're in conscience and in torment for eternity, it astounds me that I missed 
a couple of very obvious points. When the Bible says the smoke of their torment goes up forever, and of their torment there is no end, there's no compelling reason for me to think God changed the verse, the definition of eternal there from the one he used in the Old Testament. And there's no compelling reason for me to think it's speaking of individuals. Let me explain. Most of us have been told that the entire concept of Gehenna comes from this garbage pit outside Jerusalem. Are we nodding yet? Where people threw their garbage and it was always burning. I've seen garbage pits like this. And I've seen towns, that, and there's a town in Pennsylvania, for example, very famously, that had to be abandoned because the fires underground cannot be put out and the smoke and sulfur coming up. It, it's, it's a bizarre place. You know where we got that thing, that concept? From a medieval monk who made it up. There is no archaeological evidence for it. And besides, if he said it'll be like this pit burning forever, it's not burning now. That should have clued me in. That he was using a metaphor that has an end point. The garbage would have been consumed at some point if you stopped throwing garbage in. In fact, almost certainly Jesus was referring them to a prophet and and a teaching they knew very well, Jeremiah, who also wrote Lamentations. You see, Jeremiah wrote of the coming judgment upon Israel because that valley of Hymnon was where, before they were taken into captivity, Israel started worshiping false gods. Molech, mainly. But also Baal and Ashtoreth and Dagon. But Molech, in particular, we we have the statues. We know how it was done. They would build a statue of Molech with his hands like this, and his belly would be hollow, and they'd build a fire in the belly, and the hands would be red hot, and that's where they'd put the babies they were sacrificing. Right there, right in Jerusalem, near the temple. And it was for that atrocity, the killing of children, America, that um, God said enough. And he calls that burning hell. By the way, number one cause of death for children in America is abortion and has been for a very long time. Let us not get our noses too much in the air about our superiority. To anywhere, anywhere else. Um, it's tragic. And, and, and I don't know how we're going to stop it. Other than loving people to the point. Where they don't want to do that anymore. Because laws don't seem to slow it down. It, it just mean, makes people furious. Moving on. The image used by Jesus and the apostles. To describe the punishment of the wicked. Was the burning of the pit of Gehenna. The fire was eternal to them. But God's love, I'm sorry, the fire was eternal. I want to back this up. The, The horror was eternal. But each individual body was not eternal. It burned up. Do you understand what I'm saying? I believe that there is a hell. But I believe it's for the angels and the demons and Satan that turned on him. Because that's what the Bible says it was. The lake of fire prepared by God for Satan and his angels. Now, I don't even know about them. People have said, will they be redeemed? 
There's not a clue in Scripture that they will be. They're made of different stuff than we are. I'm not sure how you kill a spirit, but I trust God to do the right thing. The burning goes on, in other words, but the burned do not, as Dr. Fudge put it. But as Edward Fudge, Leroy Garrett, another giant among the churches of Christ, but we could add to it, Greg England and early church fathers, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, all the way up to the Scottish author and theologian uh, George MacDonald. All of these have said eternal life comes from God, right? right? How many times does it say that? Eternal life is a gift from God. Only he can give that gift. If he does not give that gift, you cease to exist. You are gone. That's often called the annihilationist position. How do the universalists deal with this? They're all over the map, to be fair. They have a lot of positions. But the main one, that they, they just believe that the most evil will eventually turn after a time in hell. I don't know. That's why I say I'm hopeful. That's why I don't, I don't drive a tent peg there and say, here's where I stand. And you know me, if you've known me at all, I'm not, I'm not shy about taking a stand. But on this, I, th I think God has left enough in the air for us to say we have to trust him. But we got to quit telling people that God loves them so much if they do something wrong, take the Lord's Supper wrong or something, that they're going to burn for trillions of years. That doesn't work. Jesus said, however, if I be lifted up, talking about Jesus, not me. If Jesus be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He was lifted up. We're in the Lenten season now, heading toward Easter. He was lifted up. I believe they will, he will draw all men. I believe in Philippians chapter 2, where every tongue will confess and every knee shall bow. Luke 12 indicates some will be cut off. They'll be erased. And I don't know what else to do with that. By the way, the NIV I love the NIV, but there are some verses, I think, really, were you rushing to get home that day? And they translate it, they'll be cut into pieces. No, it means cut off, separated. Others believe that the evil or the ignorant, you know, of Jesus, the law, doctrine, will first face punishment, then be offered life with God if they repent. And those who refuse will be cut off. And I've had people ask me, well, who would refuse? You know, have you met people? You meet enough of them. You can supply all the evidence in the world and they're going to be, now. Because I, I think when you die, you're still you. Uh, the great comedian and actor Stephen Fry is a, um, a big, big time atheist. And he was asked in an interview that I watched once, what would you say if you die and there's God? And he went on a tear about, well, you should have made it more obvious and you should have done this. And, you, and I was going, okay, that, I can see how Steve might say, no, I don't want to. Richard Dawkins said a lot worse. Frankly, I hope they're both saved. Because you see, hoping people like that saved doesn't mean I'm going to be less saved. Paul said, no, no, it just means you're happier because everybody's going to come in. Oh, regardless. Why is hell eternal if the people in it aren't? Because hell was created for somebody else. The spirits. 
I'll, I'll end this way. God says he's a God of love and I believe it. Jesus said he did not come to condemn the world but to save it. And I believe him. I believe the love of God is greater than we could ever imagine. And to help us get it, he sent us his son who showed us the very personification of love because he is the exact representation of the Father. Starting next week, we're going to take a look at what Jesus did on the cross. And I think you're going to find it interesting. Sometimes heartbreaking, but always wonderful. But in the meantime, we're about to hit another high holy day, St. Patrick's Day. And you scoff all you want. Well, let's see if you get a, name, a day named after you then, right? <laughs> I always say that being named Patrick was the only argument my mother ever won with my father. That's all you really want is a Scottish kid with an Irish name. It helps toughen them up, it does. I won't go through the whole story. I'm going to go over here and switch. Um, there we go. Got to remember to turn this one off now. You see, this is why I don't do tech and why we need people like Dave and Kirsten and Chris up there. That We have a whole air traffic control unit just to keep Patrick somewhere on the runway. That's, um, that's amazing people. Um, Patrick was actually not Irish. He was uh, Welsh Breton. Uh, he was the son of a Roman officer and a Welsh woman. The Welsh are the only British left, but that's another story. He was kidnapped when he was 16 as he was herding his father's sheep and taken to Ireland where there were a lot of slaves in Ireland from two different groups. The Irish themselves were divided into kingdoms, the Rees, and there are a few high kings, Adlis, but also the Vikings. Dublin was a Viking city. Uh, they had established outposts there. And he was brutalized and he was of course, made a slave. Nobody wants to be made a slave. But he had a chance to escape twice. The first time he was caught and was severely punished. The second time he did escape. But before he did, he had a vision, the story is told, and seems to have history behind it, that he was to come back to these people and tell them about Jesus. But he wasn't particularly religious, but when he did escape, he spent the next couple of decades learning of God and became ready, went back to Ireland, and he spent his life there with all the stories that you know of after that. One day he was going to meet with an Adri, a high king, which means a king over several different smaller kingdoms. That king had killed a lot of Christian missionaries before. And so he said a prayer uh, it's often called the prayer of St. Patrick or the breastplate or the deer's cry. You can look it up. It's a long prayer. It's a powerful prayer. Uh, there's a, this song is much, 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 much shorter, and it was based upon that prayer. But I have to bring this up. It's called the deer's cry because he and his men then started walking down the path toward this king's place, not knowing that the king had set up an ambush to kill them saying he wanted nothing to do with them. All the other missionaries had been killed, by the way. But as they walked by, there was a fog, and the men who were sent to kill him didn't hear men. 
they said, we didn't, no man passed. We heard deer go by. And so that's called the deer's cry. But that's where we get the songs about Christ within me, Christ above me, Christ to the right of me, Christ, that comes from that particular prayer. So it seemed appropriate today to close with that song.